Welcome to episode five of Inside the Lens. I sit down with Gene Cooper of Giga Macro, and we talk about all things regarding macro photography, uh, focus stacking, different types of lenses that are very useful when you're not only focus stacking, but putting together panoramas, uh, and how that can even translate into 3D photography on a very small scale. It's a very engaging conversation. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Okay, this episode of uh, of Inside the Lens is going to be a really fun one. Uh, I've been talking back and forth with Gene Cooper of Giga Macro for quite a while, uh, partly because I like to geek out on all of the, uh, the the technical and obscure areas of photography. And Gene is he's a great guy for this because he's doing something that I don't know anybody else is doing in exactly the same way. And it tickles my fancy in some really fun uh, ideas here of macro photography and panorama and automated focus stacking. Gene, welcome again. Uh, thanks for thanks for coming back on. And I say coming back on because this is the second time we've had to record this. There was an issue with the first one. Oh, sure. No, my pleasure. And we're thrilled to um, and honored to be on your show. So thank you. Yeah. And so, Gene, give me an idea as to what you do at Giga Macro and why this is a, a need that needs to be filled, because primarily a lot of the audience listening to this podcast are photographers. And uh, what you do is not necessarily something that every photographer is going to run out and buy because it doesn't it's not a, a solution to a problem a lot of people have. But some people do need exactly what you have. And uh, and I'm rambling. You take over. What is it that you're up to? Sure. So we take uh, extremely large, high resolution images of small subjects, you know, in a, in a short description. Um, so we are using a, you know, what is commonly known as a stack and stitch operation and, you know, taking many hundreds or thousands of photos of a single subject and then merging those together to get a higher depth of field and higher resolution. And so in the process of that, that really um, by necessity requires some robotics to move the camera and precisely position it around the subject and and then also software and so forth to automate that process and then to uh, post-process the images, meaning stack them and stitch them and then be able to view them on the web in the, in the end result. Right. And the, the ability to experience the, uh, uh, the, the finished product is, is quite valuable, too, because if you're ending up with a gigapixel image or more, I know you've done some that, uh, that push well beyond that. Um, it, it's really hard to appreciate that well, if you're just trying to load it up on a web browser. You've got a special viewer to make sure that everybody can see it. But let's talk about the reason why this stuff is even required. Let's dial it right back to a photographer and how they might experience macro photography to begin with. Um, what you'll notice uh, is that your depth the field becomes razor thin as you get closer and closer towards your subject. And the only way to overcome the limitations of physics here is to photograph the same subject at every different slice of focus. This is something I've done a lot of in, in my uh, professional career. Uh, and, and it's not easy, uh, at least the way that I do it. It's handheld and it's fraught with errors and, and all sorts of uh, complicated processes that takes a lot of manual fixing 
after the fact. Um, but what you're doing is you're doing this in an automated way. Like you said, there's robotics involved, uh, but it's not just for what's in front of the image as it is. You're putting it together like a, a gigapan would for panoramas, right? Uh, if you wanted to do a gigapixel image of a beautiful vista in front of you, you would need to do a grid of images, stitch them all together. Uh, but then you're also focus stacking each one of those individual component pieces. Does that sum it up? Nope, that's exactly correct. And actually, we worked with uh, Randy Sargent and a number of folks from Gigapan uh, earlier on. We were collaborating a little bit with them, and and they were a great resource. And um, so, what 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 our system really goes beyond uh, that point is is exactly what you're saying that when you get down to the macro level, the microscopic level too, you um, have to then introduce um, focal stacking as well, in addition to the image mosaic process. So, so that's, that complicates things a little bit more. And then also, you know, holding the camera and positioning very precisely in those different focal layers, you know, it might be even down to a few microns of positioning change between images. So that, and then that really um, dictates that you need to, have some method of, of controlling the positioning, you know, of the camera and everything. Right. So the big question is why? Right. So if you think of it as if you were looking at a subject through a microscope, you're only going to see, as you, as you mentioned, you know, a, a small bit of that in focus at a time. So if you think of looking through uh, a microscope to see a subject, you only see a small part of it uh, in focus. And then you also only see that small, um, portion of it in in the microscope so what we found is that a lot of people need to be able to see the entire subject in complete focus all at the same time and to be able to zoom in and zoom out um, almost like a virtual microscope but a little bit more than that because you're you're seeing the results of many thousands of images which bring uh, a high degree of sharpness and clarity in terms of the focus um, together with that so an entomologist or a geologist being able to inspect uh, a subject at that resolution and level of detail uh, and be able to smoothly go from one part of it to another part of it is quite, it turns out to be quite valuable. We, we initially got into it as, a, as, you know, a little bit of a, hey, you know, it seems like this should be possible. Why, why isn't it out there? And um, you know, did some fun photographs and then quickly started realizing, hey, a lot of museums, a lot of other researchers, scientists and so forth um, have actually a, a big need for that. And so we investigated that a little bit more and we said, well, how can we help them out and how can we make this easier to produce that type of thing? Um, and so then things went or have sort of progressed from there. And, and when you say progressed, I mean, okay, so you start with entomologists, you start with uh, educational institutions and museums, uh, researchers, etc., that need this kind of imagery. And again, you know, there are technical reasons why it may not have been uh, possible in the past, you know, the processing requirements uh, to put together thousands of images and, and what have you. Um, but it's also designed in a way that's very easy for somebody who does not have extensive photographic background to set up the equipment and place the subject uh, within the, the, the grid space that you have allocated for it. And then kind of, and I'm oversimplifying, but you basically press a button to get things started and it just takes over. It takes all of the images, the software runs automatically. And then at the end of that, you get the, the finished product that is then useful to these researchers, right? 
Right. So um, one of the one of the hardest parts in our job here has been making it easier for people to to use, and and it's also one of the most important things in our in our job is is how can we how can we bring that closer to a one push button operation? And we're not quite there yet, but we're getting a lot lot closer every 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 day. We you know we are looking at how we can. Uh, streamline things, make it easier, and and make it very fast for someone to to do this. And so traditionally, you know, it's 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 it didn't take me very long to set up, you know, uh, a little system here in our in my home studio at the time <clears throat> to do the operation and to put a few images together. But it certainly took an awful lot of um, attention and knowledge and and uh, time to put it together. So. We uh, now have a set of clients and people that we work with that uh, maybe don't even have a photography background at all. So we've tried to make it as easy as possible for them to get those concepts and to um, work through that process uh, in a more streamlined way. And, and let's talk about the juicy bits to the photographers listening to this podcast, because uh, I'm sure everybody is just begging to know what kind of camera do you use? What kind of lens do you use? Is it the kind of stuff that a, um, you know, that, that the average, uh, you know, macro photographer can go out and buy? And, uh, and if so, then why would you choose to use the equipment that you're using versus any other solutions? And that includes lighting and everything else that you're playing around with. Right. So that's a great question. So, so we actually made an, a make article uh, in make magazine uh, a couple of years ago on how to do it yourself. And so we do have a, a link up there on the website. It's free to, to look at that article and everything. So we tried to look at, okay, you know, with under a hundred bucks, how can you use your existing camera to, to do this? So, so it is possible uh, to do that. The real key and what we do for other clients and, and work in our own uh, studios here is really doing that on a larger scale for museums, institutions, universities, um, manufacturers, and so forth. So uh, being able to um, uh, get into that and and really um, use it in a larger context, you know, running you know hundreds or thousands of, of subjects through the system and everything. So the camera, what is the camera? Okay, so the camera. The camera, uh, we're fairly agnostic, uh, agnostic about which types of cameras you need to use. By and large, though, we use Canon DSLR cameras. And then for some work, we use a general purpose, you know, MPE 65 millimeter lens. It's a very uh, nice lens, excellent for doing general purpose uh, macro photography. You can go I, I own that lens and, yeah. uh, and I can say that it, it like from a, a photographer's perspective, it is the most difficult lens in the Canon lens lineup to use uh, because it doesn't focus. It not not even like no autofocus, but no manual focus either. In order to to focus with this particular lens, you have to physically move the entire camera forward and backward, uh, mm -hmm. which lends itself very useful to the kind of scenario that you're putting uh, uh, putting it into. Uh, and it starts at one to one magnification macro, which is where most macro lenses end. That's as close as they can get. And so then this lens will take that uh, that starting point and push it all the way to five to one. So you get that five times magnification that regular camera equipment can't get. 
And, uh, you know, I, I've even played around with putting um, uh, extension tubes on that lens to get it to six to one. And then another special piece of optic uh, to get it all the way to 12 to one. You can really push that lens quite far. Uh, and so I've done like high magnification work with snowflakes and insects and pollen and all that sort of stuff. Um, so, yeah, when you mention this lens, I, I get excited because, yes, that's the equipment that I use every day. And I know that it works really well, uh, at least for my purposes. But mm -hmm. you, I, I think we, we were talking before, you encounter a couple of problems uh, with that lens and any standard, uh, you know, kind of camera lens uh, having to do with a term that I don't think many photographers have heard, uh, telecentricity. Exactly. So for general purpose work, and if you're okay with having a few stitching errors, when you uh, stitch those together, that works, that lens works uh, quite well. And also lower magnification lenses like the Canon 100 millimeter or the Sigma and so forth, those work uh, fine too. When you start getting up into subjects that have more depth to them, um, in terms of uh, the Z depth, how many focal stacks, then you start seeing more problems that are due to parallax, which is, which is actually in the panoramic world of photographer's friends, because that's, that's the point around which you rotate the nodal point, uh, and rotate the camera around that nodal point to make sure that all the images line up. So we're actually trying, trying to get, uh, to that point in the work that we're doing, we're really photographing things, uh, in a planar mode where you are moving in a X and Y position and then Z to get the focal depth and then parallax becomes your enemy. And the term that we use and is used often is telecentricity or telecentric lens. And what that means basically is that you're seeing an orthogonal view, no parallax in the uh, image. And then that in turn makes everything line up much more perfectly between focal stacks that are stitched together. And so there are a few great articles and so forth on the web for that. One of the greatest resources I've, I've had is uh, the photomicrography.net and photomicrography.net. And that's uh, moderated by uh, Rick Littlefield and uh, Charles Krebs, I believe. And that's that's been a great resource that's where i learned all about that topic and that, that's a forum right discussion. so that you can go that's in and throw out right? any any obscure question and all of the people uh that have the answers kind of uh, uh converge on that one website in order to to help you through it and they're really nice people right exactly so if i were to describe telecentricity this is always a tough subject to describe there's lots of as i mentioned there's lots of great diagrams and, and things out there but if you imagine that you are looking at something far away it looks smaller and if you're looking at something near it looks bigger and what a telecentric lens is going to do in effect is make the scale of your faraway subjects and your near subjects the same so that has a very different look as far as the photographer is concerned you know, in the image, but for macro micro photography, that works quite well because you want the same scale for things that are far away and near to you, uh, to, to come about in particular when you're doing stack and stitch operations. So telecentric lenses are uh, probably of no use to a general photographer. So you can't just go out and, you know, plug into BNH photo, telecentric lens, find a whole bunch of manufacturers for them. Buy one for cheap and you're off to the races. Uh, they're far more specialized. I think they're mostly designed for microscopes, right? 
Yeah, that's right. Uh, they use them for a lot of inspection uh, parts, uh, such as metrology. You'll hear the term metro metrology a lot uh, when talking about telecentric lenses, and that means that you know it's a very, very precise system for measuring uh, through photographs um, and analyzing parts and so forth. So you'll see them a lot on those types of systems. And oh, I so wish that B and H. You know, had something like that that was like here. Here's what here's what you need for a telecentric, you know, optic for your camera for micro micro work. But but in the end, it's 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 come down to uh, far and few between as far as lenses and options when you get to the uh, trying to equip a DSLR uh, camera for that. So we've done a lot of different research and a lot of different um, digging on you know who are the different manufacturers for it. We've run across a few solutions, and, and we have a lot more details on these on our website. But I'll give you the broad stroke, which is uh, Nikon happens to make a set of telecentric lenses and optics. They're normally used in a microscope uh, that they make, and but they happen to be telecentric. They have a very good working distance, meaning the distance between this, the end of the lens and the subject. and they can be adapted to a DSLR camera. Do, do uh, they so cover like a full frame uh, size sensor or do you have yes that? Yes and no. At 1X, they did not cover a full frame, but at all the other magnifications, they do. So, and they also go up past 5X, which is goes up to 10X, 20X, 50X, and so forth. Um, so that covers that range uh, quite well. On a APS-C crop sensor, uh, it does work quite well. There's a tiny bit of vignetting, but for our operation, we're, we're not too worried about that because that usually gets eliminated in the stitching process. So that is a set of lenses that we've adapted and made some basic, you know, um, uh, adapter tubes and so forth to retrofit that particular set of Nikon telecentric lenses to the DSLR. And that's worked very, very well. We actually worked with uh, Rick on photomicrography.net to come up with a, a little optic to put on the MPE uh, camera lens. And that had actually a lot of the images that we originally did were done with that optic. The only problem is that, you know, it degrades the quality a little bit and also uh, uh, reduces your working distance because you're putting an extra optic that we got from Edmund Optics in front of the camera lens so you, you even have much shallower um, working distance and when we're talking about working distance in microscopy and macrography you know uh, a half of half of an inch is is common in, in that case so being able to gain more working distance in there lets you photograph a lot more subjects now, how much do these lenses cost? I mean, I've, I've got no frame of reference to what a special microscope lens would cost. I, I know that it's small, but I don't think that the the size has much relation to the cost. I, I would have it uh, kind of the opposite, where the more obscure a lens is, the more expensive it becomes. Right. So this is this all has a, a lot to do with how precise you want to be in your photography. So if you're if the, you can do some down and dirty tricks. Uh, such as reversing uh, uh, lens reversals and so forth to turn an ordinary lens into a macro or micro photography lens. And that works just fine. So for a lot of those, if you're looking for uh, a really quick, easy solution to get you into that realm, there's a lot of different uh, reversal adapters where you basically reverse the lens. There's an adapter that hooks onto your camera and does all that. For, and that can be very cheap. 
On the other end of the spectrum, when you get into the telecentric lenses, yeah, they go up in price. So they, uh, the Nikon series, you know, the, just the optic itself starts at around maybe $750 for one optic. And then it's only good for a certain range of, of magnification at that level. Then it goes all the way up to like $2,500, $3,500 in the high magnification uh, series. So it can get very expensive very quickly, especially if you say, oh, okay, I want to do 3X and 5X and 10X and 20X. Now suddenly you've got, you know, maybe $10,000, $15,000 of optics that you have to deal with. So that can get expensive very quickly. Um, there are some lenses on Edmund Optics that are telecentric, and you can look at those as well. Um, they typically scare me a little bit in price because I'll go on there and I'll look at them and be like, wow, that's $5,000 for one single lens. So it can get very expensive very quickly. Uh, for our purposes, we like the Nikon series simply because it's on the lower end of the cost spectrum and gives us pretty good quality and we can adapt it to DSLRs. Now, an interesting point here, too, is, you know, the, uh, the, the MPE goes up to uh, 5 to 1 magnification. But the, like you said, these Nikon lenses go 10, 20, and even 50. Um, what, I, I, I know that there's a relation between um, what the effective aperture is in, uh, in the lens versus the quality of the resulting image because diffraction uh, starts to play a role when you get into these higher magnifications. So is there sort of a, um, uh, a diminishing return when you go from, say, a, a 10x to a 20x? Are you still getting a higher resolution that you can uh, play with uh, on uh, on your cameras? I would assume that to combat this, and because you're using uh, the, uh, the, the st uh, stitching for panoramas, you could use lower resolution digital SLRs at higher magnification and get better results. But what's been your experience with diffraction? Yeah, so diffraction is, is definitely uh, an issue with any macro photography. So say that you're using the MPE lens, um, you know, the, the typical uh, Ansel Adams approach, you know, of going F32, F64, you know, doesn't quite work. So you end up having what's called a, a diffraction, uh, which means that the light is having a hard time bending around that little tiny circle of aperture. Uh, to make it through to the sensor. And the long and short of that is that we shoot on the MPE, you know, maybe F5, 6, F6, 3, you know, maybe at F8. Beyond that, you're actually making the image blurrier as, we, as you um, stop down in your aperture. On the microscope lenses, a lot of them do not have any aperture control. You're just uh, using it without an aperture. And what they, uh, how they define resolution in most microscope lenses is, is what's called a numerical aperture, or NA, as it's typically called. And most lenses will come with a value on that of something like, you know, 0.2 or 0.5 or, or uh, uh, what have you. And that numerical aperture is basically telling you how much uh, detail can it resolve, um, you know, optically. And then it's a matter of just uh, translating that um, uh, resolving power to the optic, um, excuse me, to the sensor, camera sensor itself. So, uh, so the numerical aperture has a big, big deal to do with it. And, so is the smaller and, number a better number or is a higher number a representation of more detail? A higher number is going to give you a, a representation of more, uh, uh, resolving power. So, and, but it is a diminishing result. So you can't, you will find by and large, you know, if you have a, 
uh, let's say a 5x lens and it has a numerical aperture of maybe 0.1 um, it's not necessarily if you put a 2 uh, 10x you know on it you it's not going to be exactly doubled. It's going to have diminishing returns as you go up in the spectrum. So, so it's it's a little bit of a curve there. Every optic and lens manufacturer also has different specs for you know what those numerical aperture values are and everything. So it can vary widely from lens to lens. And again, a lot of this that I've learned is is from some of the forums and and going on there. A lot of people have done some great research and comparisons on you know, hey, this lens works better than that lens and so forth. There's also uh, I'll also introduce here one other option, which is uh, setting up what would be you know a normal microscope objective and using that for macro photography. And so there are two different types of microscope. Um, uh, methods that you can use. One is using what would be called a finite objective, and that is this what we are using with the Nikon series, meaning that there is no other optics in between uh, it and the camera sensor. So it's a straight path from the optic to the sensor. In a infinite objective, it's actually using an intermediary lens to go from that optic through the intermediary lens to the sensor. And that often produces better results than a finite objective. So just to complicate things more further, you can also uh, add that into the equation. So, uh, And, you know, when we talk about all these different ideas and uh, and thoughts that kind of go well outside the purview of uh, the, the regular uh, photography textbooks, you know, we start to, to get more inventive and we start to experiment a lot more. And, uh, and I know that you've been as you mentioned, uh, trying to build optics for, you know, telecentricity adapters and all of this sort of stuff. Um, what other inventive bits and pieces have you had to do? Uh, I know that you've done some creative things with lighting as well. Yeah, absolutely. So um, lighting is one of the most challenging things, in, in my opinion, on macro and micro photography. You can you can dramatically improve and work with your images in amazing ways just by modifying the lighting. So we use on our system uh, the Canon MT24EX, I believe, and that's a dual head flash uh, that attaches to the camera directly, and it gives you full power control over that. It's not it's not an inexpensive flash. It's I think it's you know around eight hundred and fifty dollars or so, um, but it provides us a lot of control over where we want to place our a flash in relation to the subject. Um, then from there, we'll also introduce different diffusers and different um, uh, ways to light the subject. And we've found, you know, dramatic results between all sorts of different diffusers and lenses and so forth and, and flash heads and everything. So there's everything from the ring lights, uh, which are pretty standard, to um, a multi-head uh, flash system, which is the Canon MT24 where you can position those. So we stick them on a couple of light arms and we actually move them around. And I was going to say, some, like, do yeah. they stay in a static position while the camera is moving or do the lights move with the camera? Right. So the lights actually move with the camera. And so we can position those in relation to the subject. We can get some raking lighting and back it off to have a little bit of uh, side lighting and so forth. Uh, we can also light from underneath with another uh, a flash uh, attachment that we've set up. So we, we like having a lot of flexibility and we've uh, 
you know, there's been a lot of times where I'll come up to a subject, someone sends me something and I'll say, oh, well, I should use this. And then I get in and I take a look at it and test it. And uh, OK, sure enough, no, that wasn't right at all. So a lot of it is experimentation and looking at what works best for each subject. And sometimes it's just it's just hard to uh, gauge until you get into it and, and test it out. So you're developing all of this, uh, you know, hardware and and uh, the, the software as well to help push limits, right? Because photographers uh, or researchers weren't able to do this sort of stuff in the past. Um, but as as with anything that I'm doing experimentally, and I know we've had some discussions about uh, some of the ongoing projects that, that we're up to, um, where are you going to take it next? Because it seems like you've you just keep pushing and pushing and pushing. What is the next big goal for you here? Yeah, so uh, we have been working on a lot of different uh, topics and subjects. You know, everything from rotational photography that at the gigapixel level, where we rotate around the subject and photograph it from all dimensions. To um, you know, we've been talking about doing more of the multispectral work as well to sort of reveal things and and that are not normally seen by the naked eye. And then also looking at you know what is we did a, a project not too long ago that we're just about to release the results on, which are is seeing well. What's what's the biggest image you can do? And and so certainly there's a lot of uh, landscape panoramic photographers that have done some amazing work. Um, and we are just about to launch uh, uh, the release of the terapixel image, which is a million one million megapixel. Uh, macro image. So to our knowledge, it's the first first one of that scale. And it was sort of a fun project. We did it at a conference called Seagraph um, a couple of years ago, where uh, people made uh, mosaics out of small food items <laughs> and then placed those on uh, plexiglass panels. We lit them from underneath and we basically had an assembly line of uh, panels being shot and panels being created and so forth. And so the, the final subject was about two feet by 80 feet wide. And so uh, we ran that many panels through. It was about 625,000 images that we shot on that in about three and a half, four days. And then we've been processing the results. And, and You've been processing uh, the results for how many years? Well, we've been doing it in the background. We have a lot of other work, and we, we saw that as a little bit of a, of a fun backside project. All right. But, uh, so it hasn't been the whole time, but it's been it's been a fun project, and we wanted to sort of test the limits to say, well, you know, what are the challenges if we scaled this up, you know, and did something of that scale? And and sure enough, we found a lot of things like, oh, okay, well, there's a, there's a lot of, um, you know, challenges in processing that amount of data as well. So it helped to educate our internally on okay what are the limits what are the things we need to address and so forth so we'll be releasing that shortly um, maybe by the time this is out and we we'll look forward to you know hearing some comments and stuff but it was more of a technical challenge to see what you know what is the what are the limits there and how can we uh, what are the benefits of doing that or not so, so what, what is the most interesting thing that you have put into this rig that you've created? I'm sure that you get all sorts of bizarre requests uh, and you mentioned that some people send you things to image, uh, regardless of if, if you did it yourself or it was done by a researcher. Uh, what's the most interesting stuff? Uh, give us a few examples. Sure. So uh, a lot of the things that I really enjoy looking at are things that just reveal things that are hidden that normally aren't seen. So there was there was one subject in particular that we were using some cross polarization lighting. Um, again, you know, lighting having a big effect on everything. We 
uh, cross-polarization brings out, um, in particular, is very useful for geology and minerals. Um, it really brings out certain aspects of those. A certain, uh, uh, like calcite, for example, uh, has right. uh, a fairly strong birefringence uh, effect, which is the cross-polarization of, of light will reveal this. And that, that's an entirely other discussion. We won't get into the whole technical details sure. of it. Sure, um, sure. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's it's really fun to see how how that stuff works. Uh, I guess psychedelic rainbow colors kind of effect, or is it? Uh... Yeah. So the example that that sort of struck me on that one was um, we were uh, visiting the Smithsonian and and working with a couple of researchers there, and they one of them brought in a, a leaf, uh, a dried leaf, um, uh, and we photographed it, and he said, "Well, there's actually crystals inside the leaf there." if you use cross polarization. So sure enough, we pulled out our filters and put them on there. And, and suddenly you see these really very geometric square uh, crystalline structures inside the leaf that normally aren't visible. And, and that was that was pretty cool and pretty fun to see. Um, another example I, I had have uh, talked to you about before. Um, and by the way, congratulations on your new uh, born Danica and everything. So this yes. is this is hearkening back to when we had our newborn where we had um, a recall on some baby food formula and uh, and you know, it, the recall was for too many beetle parts, and we thought, well, that's strange. You know, what are beetle parts doing in formula? But you know, I guess, well, no, I it's, guess, okay. You know, I would assume that one beetle part is too many. Uh, what, what is the threshold? Uh, I know it's yeah, a bit of a I, rabbit hole I, here, I but uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know the threshold. But but that was another case where the lighting made all the difference. So we we had happened to have one of the batches that was recalled, and so I put it on the. Um, uh, on our imaging stage here and I shot, you know, uh, some images of it and like, well, I'm not seeing anything. So, uh, but then as soon as we backlit it and lit through the subject from underneath, um, then things started to be revealed. And then, so even though these, uh, these insect parts were, you know, embedded in the material. Well, specifically we, beetle parts, which is very concerning because do they have other metrics for fly parts? That's a really good question. Yeah. So, so the the funny part of it, or well, I don't, know, I mean, maybe not so funny part of it, is that um, sure enough, when we did the image sample, and this is up on our website too, um, you can see it. The um, we went and sure enough, you can see the beetle parts showing clear as day when you backlight uh, that. And we happened to be at a conference a few months after that, and an entomology uh, was presented with a, the lead entomologist from Carnegie Museum, John Rollins, and. And, you know, had it up on the screen and he's like, oh, yes, actually, I can identify those uh, particular bugs. So it was kind of a little uh, strange and bizarre, but um, very interesting <laughs> at the same time. So that's uh, OK. That's I mean, it, it's th those discoveries can be wonderful and fascinating and disturbing at the same time. Um, you know, I just discovered recently that uh, a lot of insects will uh, at least parts of them will fluoresce uh, if you, uh, you know, douse them with enough ultraviolet light. And so I'm just doing some experiments right now, especially insect eyes. Uh, have you played around with fluorescence at all? Uh, no, but it's been on our list for a while. And I think um, so. So one of the keys to to our system that we've been trying to do is is keep it flexible and keep it uh, being able to adapt to a variety of different situations. So with that in mind, you know, a lot of the we're not tied to any particular camera. So if we want to put on a modified spectrum uh, camera and, and throw that on there, we can do that. And so that's that's been something we've had on, on the back of our list for a while. And I think we'll be starting to see some images on our site here soon uh, for that. Because 
that's always fascinating. And I, uh, years ago, I used to photograph in infrared, uh, film infrared years ago. So it's sort of getting me excited to get back into that field. Yeah. Maybe. And, and I, I think I, I recommended that you talk to, uh, Dan Llewellyn, who is a previous guest on, on this podcast, um, about, uh, his, uh, knowledge and expertise in, uh, in extra spectrum photography. Yeah. And, uh, he, he's and, a great guy. He, he is a wealth of knowledge. So, uh, you know, feel right. free to ask him any questions, too, because he'll he'll give you some crazy ideas that you might not have thought of. Yeah. And his website and, and information there was really helpful, too. So that gives us a little bit more direction on uh, where we want to um, experiment with. So uh, absolutely. And I, and I think, you know, the broad stroke for me personally is I love uh, working with subjects and working on techniques and technologies where you can reveal something that. Uh, maybe others don't haven't been able to see before or uh, sort of inspiring a, a level of discovery there that, that is possible and, and let people really be inspired by the work that they're seeing and, and imagery and have a greater interest in that. So, so that's, that's personally where I come from is, is I, I love uh, tackling things on that might give me a new view on something. You're speaking my language. Uh, I, I love, I, you know, I, I call it the unseen world. And a lot of my photography wraps around that, whether it's astrophotography, macro, infrared, all of these things that kind of depict a world that we can't see with our own eyes. Uh, yeah. Then, you know, the, the, the camera, the equipment becomes the, the tool to explore uh, a completely different world. And and so, you know, I've even recently I've been experimenting with 3D photography, which is as old as photography itself. Uh, and it's just it's it's blowing my mind when I can see the results from that. Uh, have, it, can you do 3D photography with the uh, Giga Macro setup? You can. Um, so it's a little bit more experimental, uh, but we have some workflows and some different examples on the, on the site that talk about some of that. So there's sort of two ways that you can do 3D photography at, at the level we're doing it at and meaning the stack and stitch and so forth, uh, or multi-image um, photography. Uh, one is uh, something that I mentioned earlier, rotating around the subject, and that requires an entirely different uh, robotics sort of setup where, say, you have a pinned entomology specimen and you want to rotate around it. Um, then you've got to have, you know, different accesses to rotate around. And again, it gets into, you know, you can do it uh, manually just fine. Um, but... Uh, when you get into wanting to process more and more of them or uh, do it over and over again, then it really gets into uh, where robotics can help out a lot and automation can help out a lot. So with that in mind, we, we did some early tests with uh, rotating around the subject, photographing multiple focal stacks from all different uh, areas around the subject. And we had some great results. We worked with a team at Autodesk to um, validate and test some of those results. And we had great results on them. Now, have we done a lot more with that since? Uh, no, not so much. Um, partly because it's still a little bit of an early field on, on that level and there's still some technical challenges. So for a lot of you that are photogrammetry experts or interested in that sort of 3d, uh, taking multiple angles of a subject and merging those together to create a 3d model. That's what I'm talking about. This well, yeah, and you can, uh, like a Autodesk has apps for, yeah. for your phone and you can just take a bunch of pictures of an object and, you know, I'm, I'm sure in, uh, in a much more, um, loose kind of way, it creates yeah. a, a rough 3d model. And I'm sure yeah. that it's the same, the same algorithms that you're applying, but with far, uh, far finer adjustments and more accuracy and with more, uh, with with more information on exactly how the angles combine together, you can create a better 3D model as a result. 
Right. And it gets tricky because when you when you get into that level and you start focal stacking, um, normally in photogrammetry, parallax is actually something that's desired because it, it helps the the um, 3D engines compute that uh, model. But again, you know, we're, we're talking about how telecentric um, lenses are a benefit. So it's a, it's 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 hard because we'll then tend to want to use telecentric lenses to get a perfectly accurate subject uh, when it's focal stacked. But then that confuses some of the 3D rendering engines, you know, that try to compute that. So we've been working on a few different solutions with that. We'll probably have something out uh, here in the next year, but uh, but we're taking a look at that. There's also a group in Australia that I believe was doing some some excellent work on uh, 3D rotational um focal stacked uh, work as well. And I can't remember their uh, names, but I'm sure you can find. But uh, regardless, I mean, you're a pioneer in many of these these areas because, uh, you know, you're using technology to push the limits where photography has previously not been able to go. And uh, and so my, my hat's off to you uh, because that's uh, I I, I encourage more and more photographers to be inventive and think outside the box and everything that you're doing kind of breathes that, uh, that, that sentiment. But, um, I, I, you know, we didn't mention it through, through all of this and, and partly because the exact product that you're offering might not be uh, valuable to photographers, but who knows what kind of entomologist uh, might be listening to the show. Um, I'm just curious in the grand scheme of things. I mean, I've spent thousands of dollars on camera bodies and lenses and, and all of that sort of stuff. How much does a giga macro setup cost somebody if you wanted to do something like this? Sure. So it's it's typically uh, our base price is around forty eight thousand dollars, and that's and when you when you look at that, it sounds like a lot of money. But when you start adding up all the different costs, including the lenses, the cameras, the everything put together, the software licenses, and all that, it actually turns out to be not not too bad. Is if you're you know an institution that has a large volume of uh, specimens to image and so forth, then then that actually not, uh, works out. Um, quite well, in, in our opinion, the um, but for the average photographer wanting to do this, um, yeah, that can be you know pretty. Hey, you know expensive. what? The, the average photographer doesn't go out and buy a, uh, a, a you know a medium format hundred megapixel camera, but for some photographers do because that's exactly what they need to get their job done properly. Well, um, that's a good good point. You're right, and, and you can and you those cost more than fifty thousand dollars very easily. Exactly. Yeah. So. No, it, it, it's a sliding scale. Uh, if this particular piece of equipment saves you time, money, and gives you better results, especially in something so niche that would uh, allow you to charge more for the results, then it's going to pay for itself. Or if you're an institution uh, and you're saving time for all of the researchers and the employees in order to do this, um, it, uh, it again helps things out. And I, I don't know how, how many uh, catalogs and libraries of, of insects there are even in North America. America, but I would assume that most educational institutions would have at least some sort of a collection. Um, and how many of those just sit in drawers that never, ever get looked at? And how wonderful would it be if they could just systematically go through every single one of them, create uh, a, a, uh, an image that can be used to to research the specimen before it degrades over time? Uh, and there, there's a huge amount of value in that as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's, that's our main goal is to try to make it easier. And, and we've, we've seen so many different collections at different museums and, and institutions that are never seen by the public, you know, by and large, I think it's, 
I think it's something like under 1% of, uh, you know, the average museum's collection is, is visible at any given time, you know. So, so being able to have those uh, available for researchers is a big emphasis of, of ours. For, for example, on a lot of the specimens, you know, uh, say I'm a researcher and I want to um, examine a subject at one of the museums, uh, you typically have to fly there and and go to that museum and spend money and time and all that. So if we can save the money by making these uh, virtually accessible online and so forth, then that then that's great, and and that makes us happy to uh, see that being used and uh, have access to more of this amazing uh, specimens and subjects out there in the world. And you mentioned uh, a number of times that people can see some of these amazing results online. Even if you don't have the, uh, the, the ability to create the images, you can most certainly enjoy the results. And as you said, some of these are really fascinating. So uh, where would people go to find uh, all of these great examples and, uh, and dive into the details? Sure. So they can go to gigamacro.com to, and on the website, we have a gallery of images and, and you can load them up in our viewer, which has, um, the ability to zoom and pan like any, like most other, um, uh, uh, gigapixel related, uh, viewing software and so forth. So if a lot of people are familiar with gigapan, that it'll be very similar to that. Um, the difference with, with ours is that we go a little bit beyond that. And we've found that these tools are, are fairly useful for, um, different uh, scientists, museums, and and uh, photographers, uh, and that being being able to compare multiple images side by side, or being able to layer one image over another one and look through it um, with some opacity between the layers, being able to take measurements in our case on different parts of the subject, being able to um, add annotations and features. So, so we've sort of looked at this as okay. You know, building the robotics is one thing, doing the software development, you know, and workflow is another thing, but also viewing is extremely important. And so we see this as part of that overall um, solution to going from the photography um, studio to being able to explore and use those online. And so we put a lot of effort into trying to make those tools, online tools, you know, mobile and, and tablet and so forth, um, uh, much easier to use and much more valuable for people to, to use online. Now, you're, the software that you've created specifically for the Gigamacro rig, is that useful for anybody else that's using focus stacking with like a stack shot or anything else like that? Or is it just for your own equipment? It's mainly for our own equipment. So it's it's specifically designed for the the three axis system that we that we have and automating the capture of those photos. Um, so in that sense, that's that's pretty much geared towards that. Um, then we have then we use some off the shelf pieces of software for focal stacking and for image stitching, and those are readily available. On, uh, a couple. Examples are for stacking. We use um, Rick Littlefield's um, Zarine Stacker, yeah, and that, that, yeah, that's a great workhorse um, and does excellent results. And we've had great work with that. There's also Helicon Focus, um, which is very nice as well. Then there's on the stitching side, there's uh, PT GUI and AutoPano Giga. 
those are both excellent pieces of software for for that. And um, so, so by and large, we, we use the best of breed and when it comes to the focal stacking and the image stitching, uh, but then tie some workflow pieces of that together. For example, uh, Rick's software has the ability to run it through command line and to run batches of images. So we'll often uh, use very little of the interface, not that it's um, a problem doing that, but uh, we'll use a lot of command line calls to uh, automatically launch and stitch uh, uh, and stack uh, images um, through the command lines and automated processes. That's fascinating. Uh, you know, I use Photoshop to do my focus stacking only because it gives me a greater control to fix errors after the fact. And I'm doing mm -hmm. it more of as a as an art piece that I don't mind sinking the time into. Um, but you find all the shortcuts when you start to automate using the command lines and just trying to to make things happen as quickly and as easily as possible to people. So that that's fantastic. Um, right. And, and Photoshop added those tools not too long ago. And that was part of our tutorial with the make article is, is how to do it in Photoshop. And and they're getting better and better. They're not they're not quite at the quality, in my opinion, as as uh, some of the other um, focal stacking software and stitching software. But it's getting there. So, I, I found yeah. Photoshop exceeds in, in one area better than the others and it is in aligning images that were shot handheld um, because there could be slight perspective shifts as the mm -hmm. camera would move uh, and it will not only correct for the horizontal vertical and possible rotational shifts but it will try to uh, uh, try to do a perspective correction on any frames that are a little bit too far out and uh, and yeah that there's no way to fix that entirely you've got to you know manually go and, and blend some uh, some frames of those together um, mm -hmm. but uh, that process of then taking the individual frames and painting in with layer masks the corrections is uh, far more robust in Photoshop because Photoshop is designed around those tools than it would be in the other software. So to each their own. I mean, I love the Photoshop workflow, but I spend like four or five hours on a single stack of images because it's far more time intensive when you're hand holding them. But uh, for the automated stuff, uh, you've gone the right path, I'm sure. <laughs> sure. And and I do know that uh, in Zareen Stacker in particular and in Autopano, there are some tools are a little bit more hidden away, but uh, you can actually uh, do some photo retouching right inside uh, that as well and also export layers. Uh, so say that you have a focal stack and you want to be able to um, go back in and edit, you know, what image it picked for which uh, for which different part of the focal stack. You can actually export some of those as uh, layered uh, photos and so forth, both for stacking and stitching. So those can be useful. Uh, they can also be time consuming as far as, um, um, you know, the manual labor when you get get it back into Photoshop to um, to work with those. Right. So but absolutely. One, one other thing that we were talking about before that uh, I should probably probably mentioned because it's a big part of it is um, uh, the 3D side of it. So I mentioned the rotational uh, 3D, but there's also a planar uh, 3D method that happens in the focal stacking process. So, and that's something that you can do with, uh, you know, a manual setup as you were talking about. And uh, just by shooting different focal levels, you can generate what's known as a depth map or a, a grayscale map that designates whether the high point and low points of the image and all of the levels in between. So say that you have a 10 focal stack, uh, 10 level focal stacked image, you'll have 10 different levels where it'll show you what uh, part of that image uh, was 
in the Z uh, as far as you know what are the heights of that in the image in that final image. If you did a hundred focal stacks, then you'd have a wider range of grayscales and so forth. And I, I think that um, Helicon Focus uh, will compute this for you and can even output a three D model. Right. So so both of them will uh, both of those focal stacking softwares will output a depth map. Uh, but Helicon has a little viewer in it. It's very handy to quickly uh, visualize that. Um, the other thing is doing a stereoscopic pair of a single focal stack, and I think both both of those can do that as well. So there's some really cool uh, things that you can do just with a single focal stack. That's that's quite quite nice. What what we've been working on, and and again, it's been on our long list of things. We're a very small company, but we try to we love innovating and and have to hold ourselves back sometimes from from pursuing different things. One of the things that we've been playing around with is. Um, doing gigapixel depth maps, uh, and the the issue there is is uh, so the the concept in general is you're doing the same thing that you're doing in these single focal stacks, except you're doing it at a gigapixel level. So you're you would have to then stitch the panorama for each level first, and then combine the focus stack as a separate set, right? Right. So what we're doing, uh, sort of. Uh, what we do is we render out both the visual side of the, the focal stack and also the depth map for each of those. And then we take those two different sets of images into say Autopano Giga and we stitch them in layers where we use the optical side, the, the visual side that looks normal to you as the main guide to how that those align. And then we apply that to the depth map. And in the end, we have a stitched depth map that comes together that is actually a perfect match to the optical um, component. So then we output those, and then the issue becomes how do you then take those into a 3D viewer or translate those? And that's where we have a few different techniques that um, actually I think we might even have a, a blog article on, on some of those examples where you can go online and, and then uh, visualize that section of a, of a rock or geology specimen or a penny or, or what have you. I, I think I remember seeing the penny one. Uh, yeah. I think that was one of your first examples with that. And that was really cool. Uh, so even more stuff for people to go and check out on your website. Right. Yeah, perfect. But, uh, but 3D depth from focal stacks is, is a fairly straightforward process. And, and that's a great entry point uh, if you want to start playing with some of that. All right. Yeah. Well, th this has been a great chat, uh, Gene. Uh, and again, everybody can find uh, uh, Gene, uh, his work that he does with Gigamacro at gigamacro.com. Uh, and we will put a link in the show notes to the make article that uh, uh, that you've got there as well that will help you know kind of push some people out the door if they want to start experimenting with a lot of this stuff on their own as well. Uh, Gene, it, it's been awesome to have you uh, on the podcast. Uh, do you have any uh, sort of parting comments before we uh, we sign off? I'm sure. No, it's been been our uh, honor to be on, and so thank you. Um, the other thing, I would, uh, the last thing I'd probably mention is, you know, hey, drop us an email, uh, give us a call. Um, you know, we we like to um, reach out and talk and collaborate with lots of different other uh, groups and and people. So we, we we really love to share as much as we can with with others and and really help um, further all of the different work all over the world. And so if there's something that we can help with, we'd be happy to. If uh, uh, if you have any questions, please, you know, we're always accessible through our email and so forth. Perfect. And you can find that all on the website as well. Uh, Gene, again, it's been awesome. Thank you so much for being here. And I really look forward to seeing what you end up doing next. Maybe we'll have you back on in the future once some of these projects have, uh, have you know, kind of 
gone to the next level and we can have a totally new discussion about what you've discovered. Sounds great. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Inside the Lens. If you like this conversation and you want more geeky, technical, scientific talks on photography, make sure you listen to the previous episodes and subscribe uh, because there's going to be a lot more fun conversations coming. Thanks again. Thanks again.